you can be more than what you are. Be more today for tomorrow. Be more. Be more. I know you can be more. Welcome back to the Knife at the Gunfight, and thanks for joining us. Today's episode will be focused on media consolidation in Baltimore with the chief editor of the late city paper as well as the Baltimore Beat, Brandon Soderberg. We've actually already discussed some of his work covering the Gun Trace Task Force, a trial of Baltimore police corruption when we spoke to Baynard Wood. But also as the home of the Sinclair Media Group as well as the site of an ongoing media battle with the Chicago Tribune and its successor corporation, Tronk, Baltimore in many ways is very representative of the national, if not international, phenomenon of media consolidation. However, as we look to the city, I couldn't help but comment on some international news. Another mass killing with assault rifles that may go unnoticed or excused in large parts of this country. The Israeli military assault on Gaza land protests that have been going on for the last month or so. As a result of Israeli military fire on the protesters, at least 30 have been killed, and well over a thousand have been injured, overwhelming Gaza's suffering health infrastructure. Those killed include several teenagers, including the 15-year-old Mohammed Ayub, as well as a deaf 18-year-old Tawir Mahmoud Wauba. As far as I know, there have been no reports of Israeli injuries or any evidence of violence, particularly armed violence, among the protesters. It's hard to see this in any other light than a mass killing that includes high school-aged children really should be brought to light as part of a never-again movement to end preventable firearm deaths. It is just this type of violence that, in my opinion, has really corrupted not only the Israeli national but also numerous religious institutions, including in the United States, that have worked hard to support the arming and the escalation of violence in the Holy Land. Now I was bar mitzvahed and raised Jewish, but of course I'm not only talking about Jewish religious institutions, although this government in Israel represents itself with Jewish iconography and promotes expansionist policies known as Eretz Yisrael through its connections with American Jewish organizations and institutions. But also significantly, many Christian organizations in the United States have taken on a, quote, pro-Israel posture. And to be honest, I'm I'm offended by even the use of that terminology because it uh, is usually used in a way meaning pro-Likud party or or pro-war or belligerent policies. The way this militaristic policy has corrupted a lot of Jewish institutions I think can be seen in the way that large parts of Jewish America, particularly those with strong Zionist affiliations, were part of a coalition that elected Trump that included neo-Nazis. Now one might ask, how is it that Zionists, or sort of Jewish ethnic nationalists, could find such common ground with neo-Nazis? Particularly during a very real rise of anti-Semitism. And sure, some people may have had financial motivations related to tax cuts, but I think this really all boils down to the issue of white supremacy. Within the Holy Land, the type of aggressive and violent treatment of Palestinians by the Israeli military is rooted in a sort of white supremacy, a white supremacist belief of superiority and a right to hold and control land. And in many ways, listening to uh, Israeli politicians describe their preferred political outcome in the Holy Land, it seems very clearly to me to be an apartheid state with a Gaza Bantustan that is very much modeled after the apartheid South African state. 
And I think in a, a lot of the Arab world, as well as the former colonized world, this is relatively easy to understand. And in fact, Israel is often seen and understood as a late wave of European colonization in the third world. Now I realize a lot of people aren't going to like hearing me say this, and I'll probably be accused of anti-Semitism or if somebody figures out that I'm Jewish of some kind of self-hatred. But I honestly think that those criticisms are disingenuous, a way of metaphorically disarming political opposition to Israeli military aggression and its place in the rise of ethnic nationalist governments from the United States to India. And for whatever it's worth, my criticism is rooted in my understanding of really essential Jewish concepts that guide a lot of my morality. Particularly, tikkun olam, the concept of repairing a broken world, and that is a guiding moral philosophy for myself and a lot of other Jewish people, although often it seems not for many Jewish institutions. So I say this all not to complain, but if we're going to be serious about this hashtag never again moment, we should think about how we can prevent the kind of killing we've seen in the last month in Gaza. And there's at least one easy answer. Stop sending the assault rifles and other military equipment that's used to commit acts of violence against the Palestinian people. The Israeli military receives unbelievable amounts of money from the U.S. government, which it does not need. And this military equipment only serves to entrench the idea that all solutions in the Holy Land are military, when quite the opposite is true. With that being said, thank you for listening, and stay tuned, because we got a great show with Brandon Soderberg. Be more. I know you can be. What you want to be? No, we all got to face the reality. It's a real cold world, and these be more streets, but it's no time to waste. Get up on your feet. Got to keep up the pace when you got to eat. Big dreams to blow, so my finger feet. No silver spoons, so it's all of me. Can't help but preach, it's the God in me. Somebody had to step up, so I took the lead. Broke the earth, dug the dirt, planted the seeds, turned on the lights, shined it bright on you and I. Together we can fly, and it's no looking down when we touch the sky. It's spread a little love to every mother and child. Give a hug to every father struggling to get out. Be you, be me, be more. You I can know do it no doubt. Be more than what you are. Be more today for tomorrow. Be more. Be more. I know you can be more. Welcome back to the Knife with the Gunfight. I'm here with Brandon Soderberg, recently of the Baltimore Beat. Brandon, how are you doing today? I'm pretty good. Uh, yeah, Brandon Soderberg, man of many failed papers at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get to that in a minute. And uh, for people listening, whether or not you've been around Baltimore, I think by listening you'll get a real sense of the Baltimore media scene because, Brandon, uh, I feel like you've been a part of it for a very important part of its arc. But before we get to that, I wanted to ask, how did you end up becoming a newspaper man in Baltimore? First of all, are you from Baltimore? I'm from Baltimore. I'm from East Baltimore. My whole family's all Highland Town trash. And then later in life, my parents got to Hartford County, where I went to high school. Well, tell us about the early part of your career that brought you to the city paper. I started out as a critic, you know, and I, and I parlayed like having a blog into like somewhat of a career as a sort of cultural critic, kind of especially on hip-hop and where rap and, and gender and crime intersect, which is always. And um, ended up getting a gig at Spin in 2011. So I started writing in 2006. 2011, I got a steady gig with that Spin magazine. And in that time, I helped them do a redesign and ran their rap blog and stuff. And living in New Jersey, like 
close to New York in uh, 20, late 2012 for no reason. I moved back to Baltimore eventually because it felt right. And was still working for Spin, as it would have been right. And then ran for City Paper once I moved back, which would have been sort of the Evan Serpic and Baynard Woods reign. Um, really loved those dudes. And they gave me a lot of work. So when there became a position at City Paper open, um, they really pushed me to try to do it and just really wanted me on staff, which is really fucking flattering. Um, so I got hired. And I got hired in May of 2014, which had been two months after the paper got sold to the Sun. So really, we had no sense of what was going to happen, you know? Like, who knew? Like, I don't, you know, I don't think everyone thought the paper was totally doomed that fast. And, you know, it took a few more years for it to collapse under trunk. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so then, and then I started just doing the cultural criticism stuff for city paper like I'd been doing. Um, but I was fact-checking and stuff like that, so I was learning reporting through that because I was calling or helping people or, you know, Ed Erickson or Bain would have a story and I'd be fact-checking it just to, like, you look at documents and all that. And I learned a lot about that. And that, much to their credit, Baynard and Ashley were really open to me trying to report, which I really started to want to do because, you know, I was back in my hometown and it was fucked up. Um, and they were patient about showing me how to write a news. And then, you know, you had sort of these moments that kind of threw me into the fire you know, there were some massive protests here in 20, and the 14 tied to Ferguson. I covered those, sort of doing some additional reporting as Baynard really covered those and kind of learned how to run around and construct the story really quick. And then the uprising happened, and we all kind of felt like it was for us to cover it. And by then, I think I had started to establish with Baynard and Evan's help a kind of vision for how you write, which is very community-based. And yeah, and then I sort of went from that gig that I had, which was like, ended up being like music editor and film editor and sort of uh, columnist, semi-reporter. Um, when Baynard left the paper to do some stuff for The Guardian, I took his position as kind of managing editor. Then I became deputy editor under Karen Hooper, and then I became editor-in-chief in 2017 and then sort of rode the paper, helped the, the sinking ship not sink too, too terribly, I guess, um, because as I think everyone knows like the paper was announced it was dead in June, a few months left. Right. And can you just explain quickly who were uh, the Baltimore Sun and the Baltimore City paper? Like, who owned the Baltimore Sun Media Group at that time? It's kind of all the same people. Back then, it was the larger company was Chicago Tribune, and then Baltimore Sun Media Group was under that. And really what happened is the establishment of Trump sort of just a rebrand and I think a fortunate rebrand for Tribune because it was kind of meant the old farts of Tribune and BSMG didn't look like quite as much clueless dickheads because suddenly half the company was called Tronk. And then it was like, well, Tronk's bad. So, so, so the same people have sort of owned all that stuff when we got to there in 2014. They just kind of rebranded it. Um, and uh, old men who think they know how the uh, internet works or whatever. Um, but yeah, but it was a very weird time when the paper got bought, um, cause I was kind of friends with people at the paper and it just felt really grim. I mean, a couple of people lost their jobs right off the bat. That was in the transition. Certain people were not hired by Tribune, later Trunk. Um, and everyone just suspected that the paper wasn't going to last, um, or that the sun would kill it. You think that was the sun's plan all along to, uh, to, to purchase the paper to kill off the competition? Yeah, I think they kind of were like, look, if we can make some money off this thing, we will. If not, we'll, you know, just bleed it out. 
I think their vision all along was kind of t- to turn it into what they now have, which is this thing called the weekend on the street or whatever. I don't even, I really, which was kind of an ex- kind of just like an arts and entertainment p- paper, a, you know, ads. I mean, the thing I always stress to people even back then, like it was clear to me, they bought it to a limited competition and they bought it because they felt like there were revenue streams that the son either couldn't get or wasn't allowed to get. And so, and I said this in other interviews, like they bought us for strip club ads and sex shop ads. Then they, then they fucked that up completely. Like, I mean, that's one of my major critiques of anything we talk about state journalism is how on the advertising side, the, um, revenue generating side, the people in charge of that are for the most part, uh, fucking idiots, And then it becomes up to fucking idiots like me and other people try to stall the revenue side. And I don't know how to do that, but I'm trying, we're all trying, but, um, but yeah, so I think basically, I think they bought us to be like, Hey, now we own this thing, eliminate some competition, try to make some money off of it. And if we can't, I'll just choke it and kill it. No big deal. And as I recall, the uh, city paper staff was unionizing right as the paper was shutting down. When did that process really start? So there had been, as you might imagine, um, there had always been talks of unionizing there. I don't want to come this because, again, I was management, so I'm technically on the part of the union. Obviously, I support a union. I supported the union as much as I could, uh, even management um didn't certainly didn't discourage them from doing it then um but the fear before that which is a fear i totally shared was what if we unionize and that's what justifies them killing us and that was our scare that was a concern as early as 2014 um but what really happened was the unionization happened in um around the same time that i think they started deciding they were going to kill us and so the staff announced unionization. I had to like walk the piece of paper down to like the, like the trunk suits and be like, Hey, so this is happening, you know, which is pretty funny. And then I had to act like I was angry about it. You know, oh, I can't believe they did this. Um, um, and you know, it's, and then, yeah. And then you, the staff, the non-management side of the staff, which is most of the staff other than me and like one other person, they announced this. And then within a couple, a week or two of that, a trunk suit comes down or comes up to our office or whatever, and he says, hey, we're recognizing your, your union, uh, and we're also shutting you down. And the claim was sort of, they just don't have anything to do with it. Um, again, like, I only know so much. I'm not trying to be uh, evasive. I just don't, but yeah, I mean, but you can kind of connect the dots there. Um, and, I, and I would say that what I would encourage any newspaper in the world and public to do because here's what I know that the union helped us with is I think that had there not been a unionization and they had and trunk was there already clue had our site to someone to get rid of we would have had our heads off overnight locked out you know what I'm saying and what I, the union did was I think it made them have to have to keep us around because then they had to enter negotiations and so what I would say is even if you anywhere in the world whoever's listening to this Anything you're doing, if you have a fucking boss and he has and he has power over you, and you're a newspaper person, unionize him. Um, so I think that that's kind of what's an interesting part of the story. Um, if I can kind of really, again, as I often have been doing, praising the city paper staff is like we were in a really strange position where we then had to run this paper that we knew was dead. As they're all, in addition to doing all their reporting and hard work they have to do, they're going in with these trunk people and negotiating. 
not privy to any of that, and I couldn't be, and I'm glad I wasn't. But that's hard. And then for me, I can say, you know, that I kind of was directing this, like, weird plane that <laughs> only has one engine or something like that, that I'm trying to, like, we're trying to land it as on as elegantly as you can land something that's dying and crashing. And what I kind of tried to do and lead the way on a little bit, and I'm glad the entire staff was just, like, fucking ready for it, was I was like, look, we got some time. Um, you guys are negotiating, so you have some insight into when those negotiations are going to wrap up, which my sense is by the time those, those negotiations will wrap up, and then we're dead. Let's do some really good fucking work. Um, but, yeah, but the core of it is, you know, the timing is there. We, the staff announced the union I did within um, days of that. They tell us, hey, we're going to recognize the union of city paper, but we're also going to close the paper down. <laughs> I always thought Tronk was, like, a great name for an arch villain. Like, I imagine Green Goblin should be working there. Yeah, it's like a Lovecraftian monster or like, it has a kind of onomatopoeia, like trunk, like like flat, you know, it's terrible. It's a terrible name. So then tell me about that process as the city paper shuts down and the Baltimore beat starts up. Sure. Um, so within, so, you know, in early June, Sun Tronk is like, we're going to recognize your union. We're also going to end your paper. And they gave us then this timeline of the fall. So I kind of entered right in June. And there was kind of this weird month where we kind of agreed to not put it out there. We were closing because I really stupidly, I think had this idea that I could sell it. And if I didn't think I could sell it, I thought maybe I could generate some interest in something. So we kind of had this month where we're all kind of were like, let's have a month to process this together. Um, it was really traumatizing. Like it was really upsetting for us all. We knew, we never thought the paper was going to last forever, but the way it all played out was just like terrible. So it sucked. And then by July, a couple of people started to figure it out. So like, all right, we're going to announce it. But anyway, as uh, starting in June, I started reaching out to people on my own. It was just like, Hey, it's not public yet, but this paper is dying. Um, I think there's still a lot of money to be made at this paper, blah, blah, blah. Um, if you're interested and I talked to people and then once the paper and was public in July, I sort of started more publicly campaigning and trying to announce, hey, buy it. Um, and it was clear at some point, and I kind of knew this to be transparent, but I was just trying to gas people up and get something going, was that the trunk had no interest in selling us unless it was for like an impossible price. The only way they would have sold us is if they bought, bought it at a prohibitively expensive rate. That would mean they'd never get their money back on it and it would fail. They just didn't want that city paper to exist and so they really you know and i brought them about and the reason i say this is i brought trunk six or seven people that were very serious about buying it and they all kind of would get off the phone with the people give me a call and be like man they don't want anyway so then we started talking mostly baynard and i about trying to establish a new thing you know baynard and i um mostly baynard i just helped him but baynard woods established at the beginning of 2017 a project called Democracy in Crisis, which kind of covers Trump. And I was kind of part of the team that helped him put that together, and I kind of still edited. And I, lately, actually, because I'm, I lately have been writing the column as well, but that's kind of project. So we got that off the ground quickly. Bader and I established something along with Mark Steiner called the Baltimore Institute for Nonprofit Journalism, which is still kicking, still funding some projects there. So we kind of had these incremental, like little projects we established while we were also trying to be like, all right, let's try to figure out we can start a paper. And slowly, kind of cut. So I, that's how I was doing that while the city paper was rolling around. So you have this path trying to report their ass to having to go in negotiations with these trunk monsters. And I'm either 
working on the paper and then all when I'm off hours. I really tried to be ethical about it and not be like doing this while I was working on stuff for city papers. They never wanted anyone to accuse me of not working my hardest on city paper, even though it was very apparent I was trying to develop something after it ended. Um, so I was often doing that, having meetings with kinds of rich people <laughs> trying to get some money. And into August and September, we sort of started to work with, um, we kind of narrowed it down to someone that Boehner and I really thought was good, which um, this company, Brown Nest Omnimedia, who does the Los Angeles Blade and the Washington Blade, and Kevin, specifically Kevin Naff, was the guy we started talking to, and we worked with him from August and all through the fall to establish it. And it was with any you own know, kind of, he was of the mindset that was correct, absolutely, that if we were going to start a paper, it needed to happen quick. It needed to be like, city paper's dead, this new thing's out. Not even on some, like, I don't know, tough guy shit, but just, like, the longer the dip, the less interest, blah, blah, blah. So we sort of established that, and I started to build a staff slowly. I had a lot of freedom to do that. Like, I really had to, I designed the distribution route. You know, and, that, and one of the major missions of the, the beat was to correct some city paper problems. The city paper is really distributed only in the center of the city, really just follows the white L to a T, and then skips over a whole bunch of places, and there's some city paper boxes in Annapolis, there's some in Hartford County, and you're like, oh, okay, this is kind of weird. So with the beef distribution route, it was smaller. There's only 20,000 as opposed to about 35,000 papers, but it goes to put in Google Maps with all 400 points, and it's an east-west central and then it's kind of into the counties, like the, the you know Woodlawn kind of area, and then Dundalk, et cetera. So we wanted to be a paper where that was the Black Baltimore because the city paper was really never in Black Baltimore. And we also wanted to be a paper where it was outside of the kind of uh, all the rich white people who love to go to bars. We wanted to kind of touch everyone. This all kind of came together. We kind of agreed on some stuff. I approached Lisa Snowden McRae, um, who was became the editor in chief of the Beat, and was like. Hey, I know you know I got some cooking up, but I got it. Do you want to join? She was interested. And then a couple other people I talked to were interested that I approached. Um, some really great reporters. I know them, Mara Callahan, formerly a city paper, seemed like the strongest person. So that was the initial, or that was the editorial staff. Um, and it came out on November 15th, which is, um, you know, seven city paper, kind of like the first of November, whatever that Wednesday is. We announced ourselves today after the last issue of City Paper, and then we had an issue of the beat actually out on November 8th. How did you choose the editor-in-chief, Lisa Snowden McRae? I knew of her as a really strong writer for the Afro and a really funny person on Twitter. And um, February of 2016, we had a position open at City Paper. I thought Lisa was great, and we needed someone who knew a lot about a lot, but also a little of everything. I was a strong reporter, and to be 100% transparent, I was like, we are absolutely need to not be a white paper. We are too white. And one of my kind of decisions, which I guess I can now say because I can't be sued for it because of some kind of weird reverse discrimination, was my determination was that I was not going to hire any white people <laughs> while I was at the paper. Um, and so I really had a focus, and we all had a focus on black hires. Um, so Lisa came in. And then around the same time, we hired Reggie Thomas as a photographer and, um, and Kenny Breckenridge as a reporter and fact checker. And so it was important to me that I'm hiring black people for this paper that I want to kind of change. Anyway, 
Lisa was great. We got along really well. We reported together. She was like fun to edit. She was interested in like in her horizons. We sort of were developing these like different ways to report. She was down. At first, when I was kind of floating this whole idea of a paper, she was like, that sounds cool, but like, I don't know. And a real ethical thing for me was I didn't want to screw anyone's life up in case the paper failed. <laughs> so I had to kind of be people down to uh, risk it. Lisa was just like, I'm just not there. Um, I was like, okay, cool. And so um, I approached her like one more time, I think in like September, October, and kind of gave her a loose uh, salary, which I made sure was a good salary because I thought that might be a way of getting Lisa. And I'll say that like, hey, well, look, you're going to make more money here. So even if this fails me, that'll even out. And it was a good opportunity. <laughs> um, and Lisa, I think, saw it too. We hung out on Friday, so I know she's not mad at me that it, the beat failed, which it did fail unless he doesn't realize. And um, so, and she was just down to, for the idea, and like it wasn't explicit, but my kind of thinking was, I'm also trying to not create a paper that I'm in charge of as a white guy, and as someone who already been in charge of a paper, I thought it was really important that it wasn't me. And Baynard felt the same way, and that's why Baynard, you know, he really stepped to the side and was just like. You know, he looked at the numbers we had for the budget, and it would have been like me, Baynard, and one other person. And that could have been really a fine paper. Um, but we really thought it was important that it wasn't. I just don't think you start to start a paper in 2017 with me, a 33 year old woman, and Baynard, a white guy in his 30s, just didn't seem like new and innovative. I really thought Lisa would be a better person with a better vision for the paper anyway. She wasn't this person that grew up through alt-weeklies the way I had, the way Baynard had. And she was a woman, which is really important to us. So it's kind of partly like why we brought Mark my hand in, too, because she was like a really strong arts writer, really smart, really great writer, and again, not a dude. <laughs> so that's kind of what we tried to establish. I was really excited when the Baltimore Beat was coming out. And I remember for that first issue... You had Devin Allen, the photographer from West Baltimore, who took right. those famous pictures of the uh, uprising in, for Time magazine, uh, taking pictures of Erica Bridgeford of the Baltimore ceasefire. And it was during that meeting to, for the photo shoot that they realized that Erica had been Devin's kindergarten teacher. And yeah. I thought it was sort of this powerful moment of mixing old and new, of history and possibility. And... Uh, though I wasn't always sure where to find the beat, I could usually find it at Red Emma's. Uh, I was really excited about that issue. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I mean, yeah, I mean, and, and that was kind of a total coincidence. All we really knew is, like, we wanted to come out. We couldn't think of someone that better represented everything we were about, and Devin was kind enough to shoot those photos for nothing. Like, we couldn't afford Devin, um, which is awesome and amazing. There's a lot of people that really helped us out and, you know, just for like, even though we would try to pay some people, they'd be like, no, 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 just use that for something else. You guys are doing something. And, you know, I mean, I would say that, like, I feel pretty proud about every issue, especially like talking about covers. Like, that was always been really important to me is that every, I never wanted to look back and be like, oh man, what was that cover? Because like, also like, in a way, city paper operated differently, but there'd be sometimes city paper, you, you would just be like, oh, I guess this is the cover this week, you know, like, fuck, all right, fine, you know? Um, and you know, know if any of those stories made people, I would, but it just, it just happened, but it was really important to me to have like strong, powerful covers and the way that like you have these kind of guiding principles. Again, one of them is like, 
it was like an ongoing joke, but it was all nasty. That, like there was never there's not a single cover of the, that's all white people on the cover like I, I know that i'm harping on that but especially coming from this world of these alternative weeklies which are very interesting in age papers but like so aggressively white it was really important that sort of didn't feel like that and we were really thinking of the distro which is you know across the whole city 50 percent plus that's black it all just made sense but yeah but that that first cover was really strong kind of set the tone i mean there's some really good stuff in that issue it's crazy we came we put that whole thing together while you know because i think lisa ended up working at the sun until like the day we announced mara didn't start working for us until just a few days before so we kind of created this first issue like insanely fast we had some pretty good like iconic covers too definitely what happened and why why you know we've alluded to it but why did it ultimately fail? What? Um, so, I mean, the, 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 the company who put up the money for it was paying us. Their, their thing was that four months in, it wasn't generating the income they expected it to be, so they killed it. Um, and that was, I mean, I can tell you that, that that certainly wasn't generating as much income as any of us would have anticipated. Um, but I would also say that I was certainly under the impression that, that will, this was a long-term investment and that I didn't expect the paper to be making the money we expected to eventually make through ads that soon anyway. Um, and I can say that in terms of almost feeling like a bit of an apology to the city for it all, like I did not bust my ass the way I did and obsess over this and do all this research and all to put out a paper for myself, I didn't do it as a vanity project. I do it, did it with some help, with a lot of help from some people, especially Boehner and Lisa and Mora, and the Blade people, Kevin and etc. I really wanted to build something that would last. If I was under the impression that they would be that quick to say, "Hey, this isn't making money. We're out," I never would have entered that agreement with them. Place, you know, what I'm trying to say, like it just. So I was really shocked when we get this call on Monday as we're wrapping up another issue an issue that never came out to be clear like so we would send the afternoon we're working on an issue in the monday morning about to send it all out as pdf to the printer so we worked all weekend on the issue etc cetera, etc cetera. and then it was just we got a call and he was like hey it's over and we're like look at how many weeks and he's like oh no 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 it's, it's over right now um which you know was a little frustrating and i think it was a little beyond it being frustrating you know, there were small things like we had worked all weekend, like clearly I made this decision on Monday morning. Um, so they kind of had it let us work all weekend. You know, maybe some of those stories we wrote that we then stuck online as we would do, like we could have not run, I could have sold somewhere else for some extra money, but whatever. So, yeah, it was really sudden. And I, I think it was a poor decision, in my opinion. I think the paper would have made some money, but. I think the city is mad enough about that that I don't need to express that anger any further. <laughs> um, which I appreciate the city being so angry. Um, and my the thing I you know sit around a lot still is like there's a lot of things that I did incorrectly or not the way I should have that would have maybe allowed us to have more control over it. And that kind of is what I feel bad about. You know, like. I really wanted it to happen. I really wanted it to come up. And so maybe, maybe in all of that, um, you know, I was really, Bain and I were really opposed to owning a portion of the thing because we thought we didn't kind of want it to be our thing. And that was really like a stupid and idealistic idea of how things work. Maybe if we 
owned a percentage of it, you know, we would have the money or we would have been privy to some of the decision making or maybe they couldn't have killed it overnight if they would have had to consult with an I or so big sorry, I'm rambling a little. It's it's a bummer, but certainly I think that they I think they made a bad decision in killing it. That was from my understanding never I didn't think I was entering like a fun experiment in journalism. I we were like on a fucking mission and I thought that part of that mission was like not to see where you are at the end of your first quarter and then make such a drastic decision. But there are things that I certainly could have done differently or better, or I should have been less idealistic about that stuff than was. And that's a major reason why I think it died too. Well, I think that's kind of what I wanted to get at is what are the lessons to be learned from um, starting up the beat and then, you know, having to see it fail. But I kind of want to look more at, like, what resources does it take? Because I agree with you. I think, you know, there's still this media void in Baltimore for probably print journalism, but some serious uh, journalism focused on the city but looking elsewhere that um, functions differently than the sun or whatever. So how much resources does that really take? What it takes depends on what you want to do, obviously, and how you want to treat your staff. And so to start there... It was really important to me with this paper that everyone was compensated well because none of us were, okay, none of us other than me were compensated well at city paper. And I'm not going to talk about other people's salaries because that's not appropriate, but I'll talk about mine. And I would say that, like, I, when I joined the city paper, I made about 28000 And that's when I was, like, fact checker, special issues editor, film editor, music editor. Um, I eventually got a raise to about 40. Then I got a raise. Then when I became the managing editor, when I became the deputy editor, I got a raise of 42. And when I became the editor in chief, I negotiate, negotiated up to $65,000, which is more than I've ever fucking made by far. And I'm not trying to be gross with money. I'm just trying to be transparent because I think that we don't talk about money enough. Anyway. So, uh, so, and then of course, as the editor-in-chief of City Paper, I knew what everyone made because I was part of my job as management. I saw the absurdity of business and capitalism, obviously, in which I can sit in a room and go, and for me, 55000 to be chief. And I was just like, my determination was to get as much money out of these assholes as I could, be able to negotiate up to fifty-five. But when I before that point, while I'm still negotiating, I'm sitting there being like, a lot of these people are making 30 grand. Can I just give them my money? Can I just stay at 42? And they're just like, it just doesn't work like that. You're like, why doesn't it work like that? Why can't I give, if you're going to give me 20, almost 25 grand more, why can't we just give everyone else five grand? <laughs> and it's like, that's not how business works. You silly, you silly reporter. Anyway, um, so it was real. So, and of course the staff unionized and the staff at city paper, fucking busted their asses. So it was really important to me that when we, I started the beat, that everyone that was there made as much money as possible. And part of that, which again, I'm sure on some level, I'm patting myself on the back, I'm just trying to be transparent. I wanted everyone to make more than me because I wanted to set a precedent that you didn't have a publication in which the man made the most. So I, without giving people a salary away again, I'll say I made 40 and the other people, the other two people on staff made slightly more and significantly more than I did. Anyway, um, and one of the reasons for this is we're getting to like, what's it cost was 
I couldn't, we couldn't offer health insurance because we're a brand new company and there's three of us basically five of us you count the sales staff so like to ensure that staff is nearly impossible to start up because it would be prohibitively it would be too much money and i told the staff this look you busted your ass for no money for years at city paper i busted my ass and made some okay money it's my turn to bust my ass for less money you know deal deal all right cool anyway so that's one thing is like it was important for this thing to be ethically right, which made the staff, made the salaries are high-ish. And they were, that's a cost that the company who eventually killed it uh, took on. And, and, you know, when in that last kind of conversation we had on that day where he closed it, he made reference to that, that the salaries are pretty high. Um, and that bothers me a little, and I think it was a little offensive because we worked so hard. I mean, we put together a paper with three people that was the size of city paper. And city paper had 10 people. It's just the amount of work we're doing was outrageous and maybe unsustainable. But um, so that's the first thing. That's just like right off the bat, like it cost a certain amount of money because I wanted all of my people to be making money and they all had to make more than I did. And I had to make at least what I made to live at this. And then you have the major expense for this thing, of course, is going to be printing. And so one way you can certainly save money is to not print. Um, but I think printing and having a physical paper is really important. I don't think it's important because I have some fucking nostalgia for print. I mean, I started on the internet, totally internet kid. I'm 33, but I had, it's important that there was this literacy element that you could find the paper, or as you said, maybe you couldn't find the paper. That's part of the problem. It was hard to find, but like in theory, if you found it, you could stumble upon it. It's this physical paper. You see it at the bus stop, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so when you add up, distribution and printing of a paper, you're at about around a hundred thousand a year. So when you start looking at these expenses and that's going to cost to print it, you're, you're, you're moving, you're headed to a million dollars to paper. Um, so then you're at least making half a million dollars. And so to reveal some other money that I think at this point, I don't have any legal obligation to trunk was the city paper was still making money about a half a million dollars a year. It was costing about a million and a half to generate, but it was making enough, it was making about two million. And so what I kept looking at the city paper was like, this is absurd. If hey, if you and I own something <laughs> and it made a half a million dollars a year, I don't know about you, you'd be pretty happy. You know what I mean? But that's just not how these big fucking businesses work. Because the way they see it is well, if we eliminate the million and a half it costs to make, then we say we made a million and a half. Because <laughs> that's all they're looking at. Again, capitalism. Anyway, so these were things we thought were important. I also, maybe, I mean, it wasn't the nicest paper, but you could argue, okay, well, what, maybe you should have printed it on fucking toilet paper instead or whatever. It should have looked a little crappy. It's like, well, no, because a big issue with city paper that looked really ugly and it didn't serve the photos right. And it didn't, and it was hard to read. Like, people actually had to strain their eyes to read city paper. I think the beat looked a little nicer. The font was a little bigger. So all these things added up. And also, of course, the, the difference in gray and white paper is not going to save you when you're overhead or your suits are like, hey, you know, we're really off target or whatever. If you want a sense of it, it's about 100 grand to print and distribute this thing. If you don't think that's vital, I'll, I'll sit down and debate whoever and discuss that. But I really think we have this illusion that the internet is, everybody has the internet, and they don't. And having it on your fucking phone doesn't count because that data 
and not everyone even has a smartphone. And actually, I don't know if need is quite the right word, but the opportunity for print in Baltimore is huge right now. You think about the, but the people who have successfully self-published books in the last year or two. You know, uh, Tariq Tare is a little bit older, but Aaron Maybin, and he says he has another uh, coloring book he's ready to publish. Kyle Pompey, Kandwani Fidel, all these guys self-published. Yeah. Like, I, I feel like right. there's a definite opportunity for, like, a Baltimore publishing house. And I see, you know, that's an overlap creative energy that this city has right now that, that uh, doesn't have the capital investment to, to serve it. Yeah, absolutely. It's not about nostalgia or sentimentality. I still love to hold a book in my hand. I love that I'm not just reading Tarek's poems when he was writing them and emailing them to me as he was working on the book because we're friends. I love having a book, and that's what I love because it just can give that one. It's different, and there's just more of access. If it's sitting on a table somewhere, some random person that is very siloed for a lot of reasons, and this city is already so segregated and so fucked up, anything that encourages siloing, and the current publications we have are very siloed. The Baltimore Magazine does good work. It also does fucking terrible work, and it's you know it's not for most of the city. Um, the Sun, there's got, there's reporters of the Sun that are busting their ass, but there's that paper is also feels very much like it's writing for the county, which is not a city paper. Capital C, capital B, and lowercase C, lowercase P, and that's what I felt was important. So that's where I think printing it out and distributing it matters, you know. And like what I think about now, and I was having a conversation with Lisa as we, I don't know what we're gonna do, and whatever we do next has to not fail, or we're just like, I'm not trying to waste Baltimore's time. I'm not trying to get people excited about something again. So whatever we figure it out, but we were thinking like. You know, if we printed something out, can we just fucking drive around ourselves? Like, you know, you're like trying to figure it out. Um, because there's also some things that in terms of expenses never would not have made or break, make, wouldn't be make or break for where, what ended up killing the beat. It's going to cost us to print 16 pages and 32, et cetera. So there's some options and there's some different ways of doing it. But to really print something out, it's, it's cost. You know, I was thinking about this even before you guys announced the beat. Um, you know, uh, growing up in Baltimore, I remember when, you know, Red Emma's Bookstore, which in my opinion is one of the most important cultural institutions in the city right now. Yeah, absolutely. It started out as like a little collective running a bookshop in the back of a chess club in Upper Fells Point or something like that. Right. Um, and so I've seen that, you know, worker-run cooperative build up from, you know, that to a successful kind of Mount Vernon hole-in-the-wall coffee house with a little book section in the back. and you know, seating for 15 people at political events yeah. to, you know, this this big, you know, uh, bookstore coffee house that employs, I don't know how many people who are, you know, and cooperative uh, owning members, um, but also has been really important for, from D. Watkins on up, um, Kandwani Fidel, Aaron Mabin, Kyle Pompey, um, all these guys have had events at, at Red Emma's and it's been important place on where they sell books, you know, where they're making their money. Yeah. So anyway, I, I kind of wondered about the same thing, you know, is, is how much does it really take to, to run a paper like that? How many, you know, people are putting in enough sweat equity to deserve to be part of that worker-run cooperative? And then, you know, is that a realistic kind of uh, ownership, um, you know, model and strategy for opening up a, a publication house or a paper like that? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that they're a model, and I, I for sure, I mean, I, I admire that what they do so much. And, like, again, maybe where we, especially I would say me, but I think Bader would take the, take the blame, too. And in some ways, respectfully, we put our trust in someone that clearly did not, didn't see as eye-to-eye with us as we thought. I mean, it's because we're dumb, lefty journalists, and we don't understand money or anything. But anyway, that was the problem. Um, so what I did learn out of this, which very much is the model of Red Emma's or something like that, would be to own the thing and to own the thing with other people and be accountable to everybody in a 360-degree way. And what I established, which is still sort of conventionally for-profit, I was accountable to my people editorially, and I had conversations when it came to how we were generating income, but had no ultimate say in that. So even like when I would send, and I did this often, far off insane, obnoxious memos that were just like, what are we doing? We're not making enough money. What the fuck are you assholes doing? Like, they don't have to answer me because they're like, you're a reporter. Go report. Shut up. And they're right to tell me that, but they never told me it like that. But, you know, so like, I think, you know, so the lesson, of course, is own the shit. And I'm an idiot at 33 that it didn't, I have to learn that this such a hard way. And then, like I said, like, I'm not trying to gas myself up too much, but like, I feel like there's a small way in which I certainly disappointed the city and got people excited about something that didn't last. And that's a bummer. And, you know, I haven't heard that people are mad at me and I don't, and that's very kind, but I feel like I kind of wasted people's time. And in a way I showed, I created something that showed you could do it, but then it failed. And so I feel like people might be sitting around right now thinking that, oh, it can't work, and I want to be like, it can work, and I don't, and again, I think that anything that can work, I would love to help people, so I don't think uh, I should be a key figure in it, clearly I'm not so good at this, but, um, but I'll help. I don't think that because the bee flopped that you can't build a thing, um, and that you can learn me, and anyone who's listening is wants to call me or have coffee or listen to me over the phone yell about shit like this, I will. I think we should be building these things. I'm not, you know, and there's a lot of ways in which, like, the beach shouldn't have been, like, the only hope, and I think people kind of saw it that way. I mean, the Brewers does great work right now. I think the Baltimore Fishbowl has really stepped up its game. And of course, I, yes, I work with Brandon Weigel at City Paper, but there's things going on, and I think that the nonprofit that I mentioned that we established is going to be doing more and more stuff. It's that it's sort of long-form stuff, which is what we've done so far. Um, but there needs to be a stronger ecosystem in the same way that there probably actually needs to be a stronger sort of book, coffee house, scene event ecosystem. We need to all be building this together. I'd like to think we could all kind of build together. And I do the same thing with journalism. Like I want to build with everybody. I want to like, where can we all help each other? Not where are we competing? Like, you know, like don't worry about the fucking Baltimore magazine. Don't worry about the fucking sun. Don't worry about, you know, local TV news. Those are going to be fine. If they're not, they shouldn't be fine because TV news is probably owned by Sinclair and that's bad. And the sun is what the sun is. So just put those out of your head and how do you work with the people of everyone else? We're all the rest of us are in this together. So we care differently. We're operating differently. Right. And you know, um, you brought up Sinclair journalism and I, uh, or Sinclair media, whatever the hell it is, <laughs> but, the evil empire. Yeah, the Baltimore has been at the center of a lot of media consolidation. And, you know, at the same time, or right after that stuff happened at the Sun, shutting down the city paper, LA Times has been fighting with Tronk, Denver Post has been fighting with their hedge fund ownership, 
in terms of just fighting to put out decent journalism against you know the capitalist uh, and big uh, ownership. Yeah. Do you have any? I mean, do you have any commenting else to to add to that? And maybe to back up for a second, I mean, there's plenty of good reporters at the Sun doing awesome work under like terrible conditions. But I can say that because I worked for Trump. But even imagine the people that run BSMG. Anyone above a reporter at the Sun should be escorted out of the building. We should be terrible. Like seriously, we should all go up there with torches and take, grab the you know all the editors there, all the upper management are fucking horrible, and they're fucking horrible because they're responsible to trunk and shareholders and that's just not how it can work and as we sort of see matt pierce over at the la times who's a big part of their union has been especially strong in showing you how like the owners of these newspapers are take are getting like five million dollar contracts within their company and then you know you could run three city papers for five million dollars and that some fucking asshole that's what he gets as a bonus. It's outrageous. And then Sinclair's is like a whole other story because it's just truly an evil empire <laughs> um, with just an absolute propaganda machine. And it's surreal that they're here. It's surreal they're in Hunt Valley. It's weird. I don't even know where to start. But, you know, and like if you go on like a journalismjobs.com or I'm on there a lot, I'm unemployed. It's like all Sinclair jobs. It's horrifying, you know, and like, you know, in the same way that like I want to ding the sun, but I also am like, I guess people got to eat. They're not going to live in a one-room apartment like I do to do this journalism shit, but, like, they have families and stuff. But, um, so I don't want to ever blame people this money to, like, feed their families, but we have to get away from it and easier done. But, like, the combination here of having Sinclair, like, truly the evil empire right up the street and having BSMG, which is a, you know, trunk-owned, which is, like, a truly terrible short-sighted company that does not care about journalism. I mean, that's the biggest thing with all these things. Like, they do not care about journalism. I mean, fortunately enough, the LA Times was bought by someone else. As we speak, Chicago Tribune, the cornerstone paper of Trunk is unionizing. Will a company like Trunk just slowly get rid of all their papers and sell them off? And certainly if they can't sell them off for enough, they're going to kill them, um, which is, you know, difference between the sun and the city paper i mean many would be that like we're a harder sell because we're so small we don't make a ton of money and papers like city paper never made a ton of money it used to be owned by like two dudes so again like if you and i owned a paper and we ended every year with a half a million dollars at a job well done we'd be like high five all right um but but that's not going to happen and the sun's at least such a massive thing so in a way what i would hope would happen is that trunk dies or fails and sells the sun to someone who cares about it. Um, but I don't even know who that would be in this city. Right. How much does the Baltimore sun cost? I have no clue on that. Certainly a lot of money. <laughs> um, I, mean, I, I, I don't know the numbers offhand, but I bet there's some semi-public information about how much the LA Times was sold for. Um, I mean, again, like we need to kind of see this as a, um, as a real moment to solve these problems and those problems are both like there's not a journalism problem in america at all like despite what our fascist president says and what other fucking idiots say about news like fake news is not a problem actually at all <laughs> it's unless Sinclair like just firing off propaganda like we don't have a journalism problem at all people love to read journalism we have a revenue problem and at least part of that revenue problem is explained by people who own Trunk or own these companies who 
the end of the year, they need to make sure they make, they get their bonus or whatever. Like, again, it goes back to that. You know, I told you what I'm like, I'm like, okay, well you offered me 55 grand and I was able to talk you up 65. <laughs> so you have money. Why can't you just give my employees that money? It just doesn't work that way. And it's like, kind of like this, well, you're part of management now. So you get, you actually get to make money. It's like, what does this work like this? It's crazy. Um, obviously get upset about this shit but like at the corner of it is like the center of it is we need to just solve this and i think that as the answer to everything (laughs) um it's about putting the power in as many people like-minded as possible not and to decentralize how the news works and decentralize the power and to put yourself on the fucking line if you have any thing going if you you know you have to be able to risk it and the people who can risk it in journalism are the people that can afford it because the whole comp- the whole thing is run by white dudes like me. And we can afford to make a little less money or to lose our jobs sometimes if it could help someone else. Like we need to sort of be, there needs to be way more solidarity among journalists and there needs more sort of rage by the public at what's happening to their news. And I don't blame them for not seeing it, but it, bugs me you know anecdotally i think about this a lot which is like i was covering the gun trace task force and i was really upset that that story wasn't national because it was such a huge story um and so on one level we were doing good work at the beat along in collaboration with real news who i really didn't shout out but real news is the shit and like they're somewhere with the beat and they're really doing great work on um, banners over there but like so we were working together the Sun also did very, very strong task force coverage. But beyond that, there wasn't a lot of national coverage of it. So on one level, I was like, why aren't the national media covering this? So there's a way in which I'd like larger media to care about Baltimore. But, and then I bring this up because then Vice, who I kind of despise Vice a lot, I used to write for them a lot, but they reached out and were like, hey, do you want to write something about the task force for Vice? And I was like, well, I look like a real dickhead if I yell about how, like, no national media is covering it. And then national media asked me to cover it, and then I say it down. So I wrote a piece for Vice. I felt really good about the piece. I had a great experience writing it. And then I, you know, I started sticking on my Twitter and my Facebook. And all the local people share it and distribute it in a way they never distributed the beat reporting. Same reporter, same information, same city, same writing voice. And so we have this thing, too where we just trust these national uh, organizations more than we trust local stuff. And like, I know it's just the same as being like, don't go to Starbucks, go to this place or whatever. But like, that's, it's real. Like, don't, don't go to Starbucks, support the beat or whatever exists to this day, support real news, give your money to real news, not vice. Don't get a fucking, don't get so excited when the national media just decides to like come through our crappy city and write about it. It's like, we don't need them at all, you know? And like, if we were all sort of supporting, I could get out of that mindset on a different level with how, like when the sun covers something, that's whenever it cares. I understand their reach is bigger, but you even see people that I think should know better. will start talking about something once the sun covers it. Um, and you know, uh, due respect to the sun, you know, the gun trace task force is a story that like Andrew and I started covering in 2014. We heard about these, some of these cops that are writing about them. And so you need to support these other places that are going to be more questioning of power and more community oriented. All right. Well, at, at the end of, of my interviews, I always like to ask for uh, recommendations, usually for a book or an album 
or performance or visual art. Um, I'll take real news as your first sort of journalism-related recommendation, and I second that. You know, I spoke to Baynard a couple of months ago about, or even less than that, about the Gun Trace Task Force. Um, but do you have any other recommendations in, uh, for me and my listeners in terms of that kind of cultural production? Sure. The Ed Schrader's Music Beat record that came out like a month or so called Riddles, I think is amazing. There's also a song on it that's called Kid Radium that's like this very amazing. I was listening to it today and starting to cry as I was walking. It's this amazing song about like, it's sort of like a sci-fi parable about kids in Baltimore. Kid Radium, like the same way that like we have our superhero tales of people infected by bit by spiders. of a city full of kids that have been damaged by lead and all this horrible stuff. And I still do amazing shit. And the song invokes all of that in kind of pulpy sci-fi way. It's really beautiful. That's Editrator's great. I started reading uh, this book called Black Swans by Eve Babbitts, who's kind of a 70s, 80s, early 90s essayist who is becoming, has become, thanks to reissues, is becoming praised. She's great. Um, she has a really sort of, Didion, but less bougie, which is nice, or differently bougie. <laughs> um, that's cool. And then I'll end on kind of something I think is super accessible for anyone that cares about journalism, which is this book from that I've been reading that I just finished that's a couple years old called Land, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic by Sam Canonis, and it's about um, how we got into the opioid epidemic, and it does it in a way that's very race-conscious, because, of course, there's a lot of issues with that, but it's really a masterful piece of storytelling, and it won the National Book Critics Circle Award, which made me suspicious of it as a journalist and any journalism that's very well praised is usually, but but it's an amazing book, and it has some really good experimental storytelling. The chapters are super short, and they jump around, and the chapter will be about an addict in Portland, Oregon. Then the next chapter will be about... Um, the guy who was in University of Baltimore who discovered the sort of molecule that makes you feel great when you do opioids. And then we'll jump to some guy in the 20s that was, like, establishing, like, pain management. It's, like, a kind of amazing, that's great, and I think it's very much a model for how you responsibly and seriously and intellectually and excitingly cover a topic like the opioid epidemic has been covered terribly by most media because it's really been a like well it's sad white people are doing this drug now like Canones' book is way bigger than that and way smarter than that and it's great and it's like a book you could also go to any book in America and they would have it so it's very accessible <laughs> dope dope um, and uh, you know I, I I had just thought earlier I was talking about all the the, the, the guys that had promoted their books at um, Red Emma's but I also wanted to say I think Shan who's, who's a photographer that's um, sort of raising in her um in her reputation, yeah. um, definitely is her rise connected to Red Emma's. Um, so wanted to honor and recognize that. And I'm sure she's probably going to have a book coming out. So I look forward to that. Um, and another uh, dope woman in Baltimore who's coming out with a movie is T.T. the Artist, who's uh, uh, Dark City uh, Beneath the Beat, I think is what it's called. She's been dropping teasers, including at this really interesting public concert on Darley Park in the cold that I went to uh, a week or two ago, and it was like, audience was 30 to 50 dance enthusiasts and performers, and then me. But, uh, but it was a lot of fun and a dope um, uh, dancing, and, and, and uh, her as a rapper, I'm a big admirer of. So I'm looking forward to that movie. 
But two books I just finally got back into reading. Two books that I'm going to recommend are both connected to a friend of mine, uh, a journalist and sports writer, Dave Zirin, um, who's gotten some kind of fame and a national reputation recently. Um, and I know Dave Zirin since he was like selling socialist worker newspapers <laughs> at College Park when I was uh, a university freshman. But at the same time, he was grinding away at the local PG County paper and uh, started doing a podcast, writing books, including one with John Carlos. He's been doing a podcast for a long time with Etan Thomas um, and a radio show at WPFW um, called The Collision. And uh, Etan Thomas just put out a book called Why We Matter. And interesting, I think it, it was obviously written and everything before Laura Ingram made those kind of comments. Um, but then it came out right around that time that, that she was saying that uh, LeBron James should uh, sit down and shut up. So this was like um, a rhetorical response to that almost, even though it had nothing to do with her. Um, and then the other one is uh, Michael Bennett's book that's uh, called Things That Make White People Uncomfortable, I think. And given Dave's, you know, Dave's uh, sort of platform and experience, Michael came to Dave to help him put it together. Um, so it's also a really dope book. And, and Bennett's someone who, like, just before the release of this book, he was uh, indicted in Houston for allegedly, like, pushing somebody after the Super Bowl 14 months earlier um, in a whole really shady... Yeah, just, like, total bullshit charge. Yeah, and, and, like, you know, honestly, look, let's say there's, like, a football player who was excited because his brother just won the Super Bowl and he ran out where he was supposed to be, but someone didn't realize it, and he pushed somebody and they apparently sprained their shoulder but had no long-term problems like maybe he owes her an apology if that actually happened you know what i'm saying but to like put 10 years over his head and call him morally like bankrupt which i think the, the houston police chief acevedo did is really repugnant and you know i can't imagine them doing this to gronkowski or somebody like that you know what i mean like it's so transparent <laughs> right. yeah. and, and offensive but that's why this book is dope and i think it's important to support michael bennett because we're seeing these guys like you know eric reed and uh kaepernick iced out of the league and um you know kaepernick i think he only s there was rumor that he signed a one million dollar book contract you know what i mean like if these guys aren't going to be given the opportunity to play their game because of what they're saying we have to really support a platform that lets them you know move forward with what they're saying and, and doing the work that they're doing so that's my rant that's what i have to say about that yeah, I, I coast forever it's worth. I co-sign Shannon Wallace, P.P. Barrett, that Dave's iron a lot. So yes, yes, Dave's amazing. I love that dude so much. And I, I ran into him in New York, and he said he's a fan of, of this podcast. So Dave, if you're listening, much respect. Um, appreciate your support. So um, do you have anything else you want to add before we wrap up and just thinking about, you know, the path that Baltimore Media has taken and, and where, you know, you see looking forward? I mean, the main I just think, you got to find ways to really, you got to find ways to really go out of your way to support local media and, and just try to, try to think about that stuff a little more, please. That's all I can really, I think I'm talking to you and I'm talking to you listening. So it's kind of. No, but I hear you, man. I'll, uh, I'll link to the binge and some other efforts to, uh, to raise money and direct that. I know, for example, the, the binge also supported Lawrence Bernie's uh, magazine on Baltimore hip hop called True Laurels, which has really illuminated yeah, yeah, yeah. We we helped him fund the third issue, and which and, was really dope. You know, I mean, I really, I guess, I guess, I thank you. You're helping me. I'm a bad promoter. Real quick, binge. Um, <laughs> yeah, we were our products so far have been. We raised about. We quickly raised about eight thousand dollars last year. And we've slowly been spending money on serious long-term projects, including a full issue where we were able to pay Lawrence Bernie and some of his writers and photographers. 
we fully funded from printing and everything an issue, the first issue of a magazine called The City That Hoops, the street basketball magazine put together by Reginald Thomas. And we did a project at the city paper right as it was ending with Writers in Baltimore Schools, which is a great nonprofit, in which me and Lisa and Baynard and Mark Steiner and some other people worked with their students that they then wrote pieces that were then run in the city paper along with some poetry and fiction middle school and high school Baltimore students on uh, the whole of the paper and then binge paid them and we would pay quote unquote professional journals. And we're working on some other stuff. Easy Jackson has a thing coming out soon about gangs. And so yeah, support me if you want to support me is uh, reach out about binge. All right. Well appreciate it. We'll link to that and uh, definitely thanks for your time, Brandon. Wish you the best looking forward and we look forward to it. Since I first recorded that intro, the death toll in Gaza from the recent protests has risen to 45, including a third teenager, the 15-year-old Azam Awaida, as well as two journalists. Uh, the music you heard during today's episode started off with a track by the Baltimore artist T.T. the Artist and Mighty Mark and a track Be More. Then we heard Kid Radium, Ed Trader's music beat, and lastly, we're going to close out with a track featuring Erica Bridgeford from the Baltimore Ceasefire and the pianist Judah Adashi called Invocation, Dear Baltimore. And as a reminder, the weekend of May 11th through 13th will mark the fourth Baltimore Ceasefire, a weekend call to end violence and killing in the city. And that comes after an especially brutal April which has seen the most homicides since July of last year. So please join us in our work to end violence and celebrate life, May 11th through 13th. Dear Baltimore, let's talk about your strength. Let's talk about how you rise When everybody thinks you're down for the count Let's talk about how you rise Rise like that time my brother was on crack And my parents would search the streets looking for him And sometimes he would run But that one time, one time I found him And he almost ran And I begged him not to And I reminded him that I'd been at my bottom too that I'd seen the crevices of my gutter too and having come up out of it there was no way I was gonna leave him 
Rise like how he promised me he would meet me later that afternoon and let me take him to our parents. Rise like how I promised him I'd be standing on that corner until he returned and he left to go get that last hit. Rise like the joy in my soul when I saw his frail, cracked, devoured body coming over the hill to let his sister take him home. So rise like that time I realized that I actually love having one hand and I learned to kiss my nub every single day. Rise like the glimmer of excitement in children's eyes when somebody opens the fire hydrant on a hot summer day. I'm saying it like it's easy when I know it's hard, when I know what's been done to you, when I know how they still neglect you. But I know you, you made me. I know that it looks so dark all around you. Open your eyes anyway. They are the lamps in the darkness. Your vision can shine away the dark corners around you, of you, in you, healing you. Rise like that time I sat down to write you this letter. Whether you feel like it or not, feel worthy or not, broken or whole, rise to your soul's calling, yearning, knowing, knowing that you are not other people's perception of you, with your name on their lips and your greatness far from their understanding. Rise because you know only you can save you. Rise like that time we spent a week singing, dancing, and praying at North and Penn, with cameras all around waiting for us to blow up again. All the while we were strategizing how to know us within. Rise like that time since 2014 we had 11 and a half days of no murder. Rise like the people who convinced each other not to break that streak. See, you are worth standing in the gap for, going to war for, demanding peace for. Let's talk about your strength. Let's talk about your resilience. Let's talk about how you rise time and time again. Dear Baltimore, not only do you have rise in you, rise is you.